from WXXI News. This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made in April of 2019 on a Russian domestic flight. A man named Dmitry Bikov became seriously ill. Bikov had been a journalist, a poet, an author, a social commentator, and he was not all that popular in the Kremlin. And suddenly he fainted. He nearly died. Initially, Russian doctors speculated about maybe it was a diabetic reaction or other medical condition that caused it. But Bikov explained in subsequent days that he does not have diabetes, and an investigation found that Bikov appeared to have been poisoned. His case had some striking resemblances to other poisonings of famous Russian dissidents. In 2022, Bikov criticized the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that was enough for Putin and his associates. Bikov was declared to be a foreign agent. Bookstores were instructed to stop selling his work. He was subject to a criminal case, but Bikov decided not to stick around his native Russia. He has since come here. He teaches at the University of Rochester as a visiting professor professor in Russian. And he knew Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader who was killed in prison last week, possibly by a similar technique used to poison Bikov. We asked Dmitry Bikov to join this discussion at the outset to talk about the implications of his friend's death and what comes next for Russia, for Ukraine, for all of us. Here's that conversation recorded this morning. Thank you for your kind attention. Can you start by telling us your reaction to the, the news that Alexei Navalny had been killed? Well, you see, that's not a simple task to express my first feelings. I knew that he was in great danger because he was totally in Putin's hands. Putin pays no attention to the world reaction and especially to the inner reaction because he's quite sure, maybe not without any reasons, that Russian population is just a crowd of cradle, as he told once, by the way, in his first years of presidents. And so maybe he is not afraid of any reaction. I was quite sure, nevertheless, that he has some breaks, some limits, uh, some red line which is not to be crossed. Navalny was not only the most famous oppositioner, he was the only moral authority in modern Russia. In this, in this approach, he can be compared with Tolstoy in the beginning of the 20th century. And that's the reason. Deep in my heart, I was sure that Navalny will be free, that Putin will not touch him, that he wouldn't be so decisive to interrupt his life. So my first reaction was not only a horror, but maybe the first reaction was very firm and strict understanding that now there are no barriers for Putin and that he is ready to begin the world nuclear war. I'm sure that's the next step after the elections. Wow. Uh, what do you make of the response of Yulia Navalny, Alexei Navalny's wife, who has already come out publicly and offered a kind of next step of resistance after the death of her husband? I was a good friend of their family, and they always were very kind for me. Once, in one of our talks, not for radio, not for public, but just uh, somewhere uh, after my public lecture, she told me, uh, you never should think about yourself. You just must do it. Maybe that's your own application. You only must do everything you can. Uh, I don't 
think about results now, and I can predict results in Russia. You know, we never had uh, women in big politics and big game. Uh, usually women in Russia were just waiting for their husbands. And so uh, in Russian tradition, we can get anything because Russia is totally unpredictable. We can get um, the giant, uh, giant crush because Yulia also can be killed immediately. You know that uh, if she comes to Russia, she would be arrested immediately. But nevertheless, we see that she has a giant support. Uh, I understand very well that Yulia Navalny really has no other way. And by the way, Navalny told me once, I always had no choice. That's the reason of my good behavior, as he called it. Uh, I'm not such a brave knight without fear. I'm not such a great fighter. I just have no choice. So given your pessimism about the state of Putin's mindset and what could be coming next, what do you realistically hope can be done to prevent the worst outcomes? I think the only thing you can do is supporting Ukraine. It includes not only military support, but moral support, uh, any money given for social development, for the development of Ukrainian citizens in Europe and so on, moral support for Zelensky. You should do everything uh, with those who struggle with Putin on the first line. Ukraine now is on the first line of resistance. It opposes the greatest storm in the world history. Uh, the situation is really very dangerous, existentially dangerous, I should say. And the only thing you can do is to crush Putin's power by Ukrainian uh, bravery, by Ukrainian, uh, I should say, readiness to die. They're really ready to die. They, they live, so to say, posthumously because they're ready for everything. And maybe after, you know, today we're um, not celebrating, surely, but today we're recalling that this, this second year of the war, the second anniversary, and those two years created a new, a new nation. It transformed Ukraine into the nations of samurais, of those Japanese fighters with no hope, with no chance. Uh, you know, in one of the greatest Japanese books, Hagakura, uh, live and act as if you are dead. That's the reason you wouldn't, you wouldn't be fighting for your life. You would be fighting for your values. Maybe that's right. And maybe Ukraine now is the only force which can stop Russian dictatorship. Well, a couple more questions for you, and we appreciate your time. I wanted to ask you if it is possible that your reaction to the killing of Navalny, that this represents, represents some kind of evidence that Putin has no more boundaries and that anything is now possible, couldn't someone say that, look, Alexei Navalny is part of a line of people that Putin and his, and his people have murdered, Boris Nemtsov in 2015, that this is not something new, perhaps? No, it is new, and I can underline um, that Navalny was the leader of the youth. Nimtsov was much elder. Uh, they had 
15 years of difference. That's a big gap. He was very young in his psychological age. He was really a, a charming man with great charisma. But nevertheless, Navalny was the leader of the youngest. Uh, he was just embodying of their hopes, the symbol of their hopes. And that's the reason that uh, after Nimtsov's death, there was, there was such a shock. You know, most of people living now in Russia always connected their future, uh, the idea of their future as a whole, uh, with Navalny's freedom. They understood that he will play the great part in their future and the great part, the great role in Russian future at all. He had plans, projects, uh, the very clear understanding of immediate and concrete steps which should be done by crisis management after Putin. And that's the reason that uh, after Nimtsov's death, there wasn't such a shock. Sure, those who knew him closely, like me, for example, those who participated with him, not only <clears throat> marches of protest, but his first steps in politics in 90s, when I was a young journalist describing his those people sure uh, felt the great anxiety and the great sorrow. But for most, uh, for most of Russian population, it was the symbol of the 90s. And Navalny was the symbol of 10s and 20s. And he was really very popular among, for example, among my students, among my pupils, uh, and even in my family. My children, uh, my elder children uh, were and are his true supporters. They participated in all his meetings, all his, um, all his marches. And by the way, when my son have got his signature, that was a great event in his life. Um, so I think that Navalny's death is an attempt to kill the hope. Uh, but hope, you know, dies the last. And that's the reason that maybe this step would be more decisive and more significant in the future development of Russian opposition. All right. Finally, I wanted to ask you about what you what you make of the United States reaction in the last couple of years. Of course, you're a, a wise observer. You see how polarized American political life has become. And now you have some leading conservative propagandists like Tucker Carlson last week in Russia defending Putin. In fact, he was asked about Navalny before Navalny was killed, and Tucker Carlson said, leaders kill people. All leaders kill people. It's a fact of life. What do you make of what you see from the American sort of political life? And, and maybe that's too complex a question, but I guess I'm asking if you are surprised at how difficult it has been to maintain support for Ukraine in opposition to this invasion. Well, the question is really complicated. First of all, I feel any sorry for Tucker Carlson. Now we see the end of his career. Um, American the, the society, end, the end of his career. The end of his career. American society can be polarized like the hell. Everything can happen, devilishly polarized. But American society never will forgive political murder, and their supporters. That's normal. Uh, if, in this situation, Donald Trump supports Putin, uh, that would be, uh, for him, the same crush as for Carlson. By the way, he understands 
that Navalny is a great moral force. That's the reason that in one of his handless tweets, he compared himself with Navalny. A lot of Republican politicians have compared Trump to Navalny. Sure, there is no comparison because Navalny was a great danger. And by the way, Donald Trump is uh, practically safe, absolutely safe. Uh, by the way, you see, there is the main comparison and the main difference, as we say, that there's two big differences. The main difference is that Trump never risked seriously. He never came to uh, Capitol to support his followers. He never uh, said openly that he was supporting them at this minute. He never confessed. He's just a careerist, a showman, but there was no such risk for him. He never was in such position like Navalny because he never had such enemies like Putin's power and, by the way, Putin's secret service. Dmitry Bikov, thank you for making the time for this program. We very much appreciate you your so insight. Thank you so much. I, I hope not to disappoint you. Thank you and thanks. Dmitry Bikov, inaugural scholar in exile in the Humanities Center at the University of Rochester, joining us to open this hour. And let me welcome our guests in studio. With us is my colleague from WXXI, Mikhail Gerstein, is a native of Ukraine, a documentary filmmaker. Um, and his film, War in Ukraine, A View from Inside, will be shown this Saturday, 3 p.m. at the Rochester Academy of Medicine. And I'll be there for that event. Mikhail will be there, and I know he hopes to see you there. Mikhail, thanks for joining us back here in studio. Thank you, Evan. Also with us in studio, Dr. Matt Leno. Matthew Leno is Associate Professor of History at the University of Rochester. Welcome back. Thank you for being with us. And welcome to Dr. Randy Stone, Director of the Skalny Center for Polish and Central European Studies at the University of Rochester. Welcome back to the program. Nice to be with you, Evan. Um, did you have any sense of surprise, Randy, that um, that's, when you got the news that Navalny had been killed? Well, it, it, an event like this is always a shock. So yes, I was I was surprised. Uh, I thought that uh, Putin would try to avoid this. Uh, I think that Navalny is much more dangerous to Putin as a martyr than he was as uh, a political organizer uh, who was in prison. And so I I expected that uh, I, I I was also shocked earlier uh, that uh, so much came out about Naval, uh, from Navalny uh, while he was in prison. They didn't manage to isolate him. That he was able to communicate with the public. That's right. He was, was able yeah. to write reams and reams of letters and actually have them delivered. Um, and that uh, he was able to get access to reading material. And he, they, they they could have isolated him. Uh, and they they didn't. Uh, I think that was a, a colossal mistake. And it's a puzzle. Why would they have done that? Uh, I think that uh, they must have been hoping that he would make a mistake, that he would uh, say something that they could use to compromise him or discredit him somehow. Uh, but he didn't. Uh, they gradually ratcheted up the pressure on him. You know, they gave him more and more inhuman conditions to live in. Uh, they had uh, special punishment cells that were open to the air and were very, very cold. Uh, in December, he was moved to the uh, to a penal colony in the Arctic, and the temperatures at one point got to negative 26 degrees Fahrenheit when he was in this exposed cell uh, for some period of time. He spent 308 days in, in, in these punishment cells, uh, which are meant to gradually wear down your hope, your, your health, 
uh, and uh, and make you succumb. So Putin must have hoped that uh, this kind of slow torture would eventually wear him down and he would succumb, but he didn't. He was indomitable, and eventually his body gave out before his spirit did. Uh, but this is a this is a. I don't know if it's a catastrophe for Putin, but it's a, a crisis for Putin. It's a it's a um, it's yet another thing going wrong, right? Is is in his strategy? Well, and Dmitry Bikov says he thinks it's an indication that Putin ordered the killing, and has lost any sense of limits, and we can no longer assume that there are any guardrails at all. Do you view it that way? I guess I don't see it as a breakpoint that way. Um, I think Putin has always been uh, fairly cautious and you know has 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 probed to see what the limits are and has stepped short of uh, of provoking a nuclear conflict with the United States the United States has always been cautious and dealing with Putin and has stepped well short of his boundaries. And they've gradually been ex- on both sides discovering that uh, the boundaries were further out than they thought they were. Right? So the United States has gradually escalated its uh, support for Ukraine until it was cut off uh, by the Republican Congress. Uh, and the, uh, the uh, Russians have gradually uh, escalated uh, the, the kinds of attacks on civilians that they'll undertake and so forth. Um, I guess I don't see this as a, a sharp break point. I, I, I don't think Putin is trying to send us a signal here. Um, I, I think this is a, just a, probably another miscalculation. Okay. Uh, Dr. Leno, one of the early questions we have is, are we sure Navalny is even dead? You know, there's all this minf- misinformation. I think we are now. I think that um, there's enough evidence, including from um, Alexei Navalny's family, that they accept that he has died. What, what we don't know, and perhaps you can educate us if I'm wrong, is we don't know manner of death. They're, she's calling for the, her, his wife is calling for the release of the body. And is it possible that um, contrary to an ordered hit, that this was, hey, let's continue to isolate him, to torture him, to, to make him experience all these terrible things, not thinking he would die and that was, a, that was an overstep there. Is that possible? I think it's possible. I, I, we may never know. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it matters that much with regard to. Um, it, it may have may matter with regard to analyzing, trying to analyze what um, Putin is thinking, what calculations he might be making. If he ordered the hit himself directly, then that tells us um, that he thought Navalny was extremely dangerous, uh, which I think is a miscalculation. My own sense is that Navalny and it's. Too bad was not that dangerous to him. But it, it, it's too bad in that it would have been. Well, I, I one would one would wish risk. one would wish for Putin to be in danger, and I, I don't think that. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that he is. But in terms of the murderous intent and the moral, um, Putin's moral responsibility. I, I don't think it makes a difference whether he was poisoned or whether he had, for example, a, a cardiac event, quote unquote. Okay. Um, uh, on the grounds that Dmitry Bikov gives us, that Navalny was different than the previous murder dissidents, that this was a man who represented and was the voice of the youth opposition, what do you make of that? 
I would agree with that up to up to a certain point. I think that he was. I uh, and I think that the point about him being part of the youth opposition or a, a strong symbol to youth opposition was a very good one. He was not the only moral force in in Russia, as as um, Dmitry suggested. I, I, I disagree with that, and I think that you know he will be a symbol, a martyr for future generations in this uh, great Russian intelligentsia tradition of opposition to the state, uh, to a tyrannical state. Well, Mikhail Gerstein, you heard Dmitry Bikov say that from this point forward. The best opposition to Putin is support for Ukraine. And that you have said that from day one as a native Ukrainian yourself. Um, how do you see, as we approach the two-year mark, how do you see the state of the opposition now? Um, I had a chance to speak with a couple of oppos Russian opposition leaders. One of them is actually, and I bet where I disagree, that Navalny is the last hope. Uh, some of them live in exile. Uh, one of them is Natalia Pelevin. She's probably one of the... Uh, well-known, and she, she worked with Nemtsov, and she worked with uh, Navalny. Um, support for Ukraine is probably the best way to end Putin's dictatorship, because uh, we're at the point when, and I think many dictators, uh, well, all the dictators, are pretty much unpredictable. And Putin right now, at, the, uh, at that level or at that stage, when we cannot predict his next step. And this is the most dangerous part, not just for the Ukraine, for example, because the Ukrainians are in danger every day there, but I think for all, all the world. Now the Russian propaganda not even hiding who's going to be next. The Baltic countries, the Poland, they keep saying, let's end America. So uh, I agree and disagree with Bekov, but... Uh, um, support for Ukraine, and I've been, as you said, I've been saying it since day one. Uh, that's probably the best way to to deal with what's going on right now. And uh, mm, Navalny wasn't just. I have my personal opinion about everything and what he's done, but uh, uh, and honestly, in Ukraine, mm, people still remember what Navalny's, Navalny's opinion about Crimea and his semi-joke about sandwich. Uh, so, mm, but again, that death, unfortunate death, a murder, let's put it openly, it, is, it was a murder. Um, perhaps the way of r rising an opposition in, in Russia, although, in my personal opinion, the uh, Russian opposition is still weak. Well, we'll talk about Mikhail's documentary coming up here. And listeners, uh, if you want to add your voice to this conversation, you can do that. It's 844-295-TALK. It's 844-295-8255. 263-WXXI if you're in Rochester. 263-9994. I only want to briefly take a tour back into the Carlson interview because we covered it on this program last week and I think listeners are probably well aware of my own opprobrium and sort of disgust for everything that that is. Um, and yet when we did that conversation, 
We hadn't yet seen Tucker Carlson fawning over subways and grocery stores. Mm. I just found laughably propagandistic. Um, and then we saw Tucker Carlson on stage at a conference asked, hey, how come you didn't inter when you interviewed Putin, which it wasn't much of an interview, why didn't you ask about Navalny and free speech? You say that free speech is the bedrock of, of human society. You didn't even ask? And he first blew it off and he said, uh, everybody else has asked about that. All journal, Other journalists have asked about that. Even though before the interview, Carlson was arguing that other journalists didn't even care to interview Putin. Well, now he's saying, well, a lot of other journalists have asked him about that. You didn't need me to ask him about it. But when he was pressed about Navalny, and this is several days before Navalny died, Tucker Carlson said that leaders kill people. That's just the reality. And some kill more than others. Now he puts out a statement saying that the death of Navalny is a tragedy and that no decent person could support it or defend it. And yet just days before Navalny died, Carlson essentially did. So I don't know if you, you felt like you learned anything from that two hours that involved maybe four total questions and, a, and just a stage to, <laughs> I don't know, blame Poland for World War II. And I mean, all mm -hmm. the things that we saw. What did, did you learn anything that you want to make sure listeners hear about, Randy? Well, I mean, I, I, th I thought it was interesting. Um, I, one thing that I learned was an update on Putin's health. He uh, seemed to be in full command of his, uh, you know, his faculties and uh, had the stamina to sit there for a couple hours. Uh, he was, you know, not reading from notes. Uh, he was, uh, you know, speaking extemporaneously as we've seen him do many times before. He, uh, you know, routinely would have long uh, uh, conferences with journalists um, at Valdai and, and talk off the cuff at great length uh, with lots of detail and so forth, and he's still able to do that. So that's a sign that he's not going to drop dead next week. Um, and we, we, you know, we, we've had a lot of periods where we've wondered about his health and, you know, we haven't seen him for a while, and so that was an important update. Um, another thing was the, the extraordinary animosity towards Poland that he expressed. Um, I guess I had not seen him express it quite that way before. Um, as, you, as you said, he uh, he blamed Poland uh, for for Hitler's invasion in 1939. Uh, Hitler, he says, had to invade Poland because Poland was being unreasonable. They wouldn't give him his their territory. Uh, this is Comparing himself to Hitler and Ukraine to Poland, pretty much. That was the that was the subtext. That's right. If Ukraine were just reasonable, if Poland were just reasonable, we could avoid all this unpleasantness. That was kind of the implication. Uh, but uh, to have a Russian leader uh, taking Hitler's side in the, the conflict with Poland, of course, Stalin uh, marched in and was in league with Hitler when uh, the invasion happened. The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact involved the Soviet Union invading from the east while the Germans invaded from the, from the west. Uh, but it wasn't spoken openly that they were in league, right? Uh, you know, that this you is, know what else. That's right. Uh, so, th so that was extraordinary, and th that he traces this back to uh, you know the you know the 1640s and the Helmelnitsky uh, you know um, uh, even further invasion. That's right. To Rurik's uh, there are, are uprising, um, and uh, you know the, this 
the, the polls, uh, he's made it sound like we're, you know, we're, we're the ones who were trying to pull Ukraine away from Russia and that this has been this long time struggle. The implication seems to be that he would really like to uh, expand a bit at the expense of Poland. Uh, and I think that must have just been chilling for Polish uh, listeners to, uh, to see. Uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with Dmitry Bikov saying that that will be the end of Tucker Carlson's career. I think that there is a lot of money to be made in that line of work right now. And maybe I'm wrong. But uh, Dr. Leno, did you learn anything that was of value in that interview? Um, no, I did not learn anything. I think that the most interesting part of it is that there is a an openly authoritarian conservative movement in the United States today, which seems to be supported by 70 to 80 percent of Republicans. From talking to folks who are Trump believers, I, I disagree that uh, a political murder is sort of, they couldn't support it in the United States. I think this is what is going on is a with both the Russian supporters of Putin and, and the United States supporters of Trump is a simple worship of dominance and power. And Hannah Arendt said in her uh, analysis of Nazism and, and to some extent communism, the thing about, she called them the masses, the thing about the masses is that when somebody like Hitler does something evil, they don't think, wow, that's evil. They think, that was evil and he got away with it. That's pretty impressive. I think that's the mentality at the core of Putin's support, which is very widespread in Russia. And Carlson is, as you suggested, uh, a mercenary hack who wants to make money. And he's also part of this worship of power. So uh, the only other thing that, uh, there may be one thing that I knew about Putin that this reinforced, which is that he is, one of his motivations is a particularly particular vision of the history of Russia and the Russian Empire, which is distorted. Um, there are, it's, you know, like with a lot of distorted histories, there are bits and pieces of truth to it, but it's, it's fundamentally distorted. I've got a whole piece up fact-checking Putin on the University of Rochester website about how distorted this is but that it, it actually is part of his motivation. And so I don't think he's a man who has no limits anymore, but like most of us, he's not a completely rational calculator. Let me ask you one follow-up before I turn to Mikhail here. And this is going to reveal me being about a mile wide and an inch deep, so I apologize in advance. But one of the, the confounding aspects of this for me, when you, do, when you talk about a growing authoritarian movement, a worship of autocratic power. My lay read of history and what I remember in my studies is that when there is great risk and conflict, it is natural to gravitate towards authoritarians. Hope and a, a, a hopeful populace will try to embrace a good authoritarian, an authoritarian who can, can wield power for the good of people. Um, but when there is extended peacetime um, and pluralism that you move away from autocracy, you move away from a worship of power. Now, maybe the, do the 
the doubt that the David Frenches of the world would say, well, it's also decades of, of what we would call decadence and you know, f forgetting what risk looks like. But how are we at a place where th these seem like very disparate populaces that are starting to embrace authoritarianism, and it's not just populations at risk. They're inventing risk in their head, perhaps. But why, what do you see there? Why is this happening? Unfortunately, I don't have a simple answer to that question. I, I think in the Russian case, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in Russia in the 1990s, and it was an incredibly disruptive period, and not just economically, I would say spiritually. And to put a simple gloss on it, a lot of us who were in and out were thinking, uh, Weimar Russia, that, um, that this could not but end in authoritarianism. I think that um, my later visits, people liked Putin because they saw him as a competent, um, they saw him as competent, uh, almost a technical, technical specialist. And around Moscow, their living standards were rising. Why people, yeah, I, I actually don't understand fully why people in good um, material circumstances embrace uh, authoritarianism. I think that we have to accept that um, democracy is not the default in human history. It's actually a rare phenomenon. And a recent phenomenon, very recent, like some, by some accounts only after 1945, and that democracy is not in our DNA, and, and that means that, and we are vulnerable to manipulation and authoritarianism and... Propaganda? Yes, and the, Putin's propaganda, a lot of it is not so much that it's lies, it's that it fills the public space so that it creates the impression of a power which cannot be surmounted. So it's not just the lies, it's the power. But, you know, democracy is going to be a continual struggle. It's not the default. Well, Mikhail, um, when, I'll just ask you briefly, if you want to weigh in on the interview, I don't even know if you watched the Tucker Carlson interview. Uh, bits and pieces. Yeah. But uh, I'll continue what I've learned. I've learned that uh, uh, Putin keep Putin keeps keeps rewriting history on his own will from his own sick mind. Um, uh, he keeps lying, and for the lying person, he doesn't need to have notes because <laughs> the liar <laughs> lies every time he opens the mouth. He does remember when, dates, though. Uh, <laughs> he he remember dates. But, but the wrong events <laughs> with those dates, at least in this 25, 30 minutes that he tried to teach uh, uh, Carlson that uh, uh, Russia started from R Rurik's and uh, Ukraine was created by, uh, by Austro-Hungarian uh, general staff, right. which is now his um, another way or another reason when, or how you can say, like, uh, another example when and how Ukraine was created. The first was Lenin created it, and then um, uh, somebody else, now the Austro-Hungarians. Uh, um, so the, the liar doesn't need notes. He, that, and he is the liar, and the same as it goes to the Russian propaganda. They are uh, out... Uh, they are on an upper level than 
Goebbels' propaganda used to be right now. I'm talking about Russian propaganda. And uh, speaking about autocracy, authoritarians, um, historically, and the historians will say if I'm wrong or not, but the, 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 that sort of a dictatorship or uh, authoritarian regimes uh, brought, to, brought the, the Roman Empire to destruction. Soviet Union or Soviet Empire was collab- collapsed because of authoritarian regime. And I think the Russia is next, as of now. So uh, I know you're hopeful. Of, I believe in that. I believe in that, and uh, uh, my friend in, uh, and history professor in Ukraine mentioned that in his interview that he believes that uh, Russia is next. So one other point for Mikhail, and then I'm, I'll go to some of your feedback, listeners. Um, Mikhail Gerstein is a native of Ukraine who spent roughly a month in Ukraine in the fall of 2022. Yep. and. His film is just over an hour long, and it is remarkable. Um, it takes you to a number of different cities. Mikhail was there when, right after the liberation of Kherson, and President Zelensky showed up. You, Literally you were short. smart enough to be rolling the camera right away. I mean, standing there in the open air, as far this far away from Zelensky, was pretty remarkable to see. Um, but for for everyone listening who feels like you've seen the images of war, and it's been two years now. The film takes you inside basements. It takes you in, inside destroyed residential settings where the Russians claimed they were looking for military installations. And it is devastating to see, but it is necessary because at the two-year mark, there is a lot of fatigue. And we see it in Congress and you see it in a lot of places. I think the film is necessary and it is being shown at 3 p.m. this coming Saturday at the Rochester Academy of Medicine and there are seats for you. You're welcome to be there. It's called War in Ukraine, A View from Inside. Um, but, Mikhail, for, we've been talking a lot about messaging. What do you hope your film can do? To show the American public that uh, the war is real. Um, honestly, I, 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 grew up in a, I grew up in a military family. So I was with my father since I was a little... And every war games he's been involved in, um, I've seen the war through the television, the war in Ukraine, and I've seen the uh, uh, the devastation that war brought to my motherland. Uh, now, in the 21st century, uh, my family members fighting at the front lines, my uh, close friends are fighting at the front lines, my f- close friends are being bombed pretty much every time the Russians bombing uh, different cities and uh, uh, city d- destruction with my own eyes that Russia brought to Ukrainian land, cities, villages, uh, that was shock, a real shock. That was like true, the country is at war. And at the same time, there were peaceful night in the village of well, morning in the village of my wife, where my wife's family lives. And uh, I couldn't believe that there is war literally a few kilometers away. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing President Zelensky was 
a big surprise, although we were warned like literally few minutes before. Uh, but see the uh, people who just got liberated, uh, that was more uh, impressive how people were like happy, really happy. 3, so, p 3 p.m. Saturday. Yep. We'll see you 3 there. 3 p.m. Saturday. Um, Jillian writes to say, I have a theory on Navalny. I don't think either Yevgeny Prigozhin or Alexei Navalny are dead. It's just Putin's way of getting them out of the way, especially before his election. That's from Jillian. I, I, I can understand, mm -hmm. Professor Stone, why some might be suspicious. I also feel like that's a symptom of Putin's success in making people feel like there is no reality. There is no truth. And I, but I, I accept that Prigozhin and Navalny are dead. I, I, I don't know what you think. Well, you know, we had a game um, when I was living in Moscow in uh, 1991, 92, uh, trying to figure out what was going on behind the scenes in Russian politics. And whoever could come up with a story that was just one twist more fantastic than whatever anybody else had come up with, that was the winner, right? And they, that must be trite. Um, and so there, there is this kind of a um, sort of conspiratorial uh, feeling, which I don't know if it grows in Russia because of the circumstances or whether uh, it's just a, a game that that Russians love to play. But it's uh, uh, that's right. Uh, no, I think uh, Prigozhin was assassinated because he was a concrete threat to the regime and. Uh, he was sufficiently dangerous that Yeltsin had to negotiate with him and get him off his guard and then assassinate him rather than Did confront you say him Yeltsin? Open. No. Uh, sorry. Did I say Yeltsin? Putin. Sorry. Your, Still your mind in the was 1990s. back in the 90s. I, uh, my uh, mind was right back in 1991. Um, <clears throat> so, um, uh, yeah, no, I, I think uh, Navalny was, was dangerous in a different way. And... But I think that this act makes him more dangerous. Um, I, th I think you know he he returned voluntarily to Russia. He I think felt that he had to do that in order to prove his credibility um, and to take the fight home to Putin. But he knew that his chances of survival uh, were were slim, that he would certainly be imprisoned, that he would be subjected to all sorts of dehumanizing um, treatment if he did that. It was a tremendous act of personal bravery uh, and self-sacrifice. And, you know, Russia is still a predominantly Orthodox Christian country that believes in the power of sacrificial love. Mm. It's... Christ died for to save us from our sins, right? And so the act of self-sacrifice to uh, to uh, uh, to, to uh, subject yourself to punishment and almost certain death uh, for the sake of your values is something that I think resonates uh, and will be a very powerful uh, message and. Putin has proved that he w that Navalny was right by killing him. Could I interject? Simply, I, I agree with um, just about everything Randall said, I, except for the idea that Navalny is an immediate threat. Um, I think that very long term, I have uh, I have hope for democracy, 
and end in Russia. The, eventually, the authoritarianism will end. Shorter term, um, Navalny's polling ratings, and there are some problems with polls in Russia, but they 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 still have some. Are, were very low in Russia. People by the end, people did not admire him, and Putin's are very high. And there's really there you can find spots of dissidents, but there's there's no signs of a mass dissident movement right now. So um, I would say that I. Long-term, Navalny is incredibly important, part of an ongoing human struggle for democracy for precisely the reasons Randy said. I'm not sure that he's immediately dangerous or was. Let me grab a phone call from Frank in Greece. Hi, Frank. Go ahead. Hello. Let's, let's cut the BS. What we're in is a religious war. Um, we have white Christian Europe versus um, Muslim South Asian uh, intrusion. Um, and Muslim population is very wide, very diverse, very tolerant in some conditions. I um, want to just, I'm so sorry, but I just need to quote uh, um, Rolling Stone's Sympathy from the Devil, uh, 1971. I killed the czar and his, and his ministers. Anastasia screamed his name. Um, I drove a tank in the general's rank when the blitzkrieg grazed and the body stank. You know, I, 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 I shouted out who killed the Kennedys, and after all, it was you and me. The point I'm trying to make is that Western cowardice in this situation is disgusting and inexplicable and um evan dawson you are not an inch deep and a wild <laughs> wild by the mouth you are a dangerous intellectual so uh please let me hang up okay all right <laughs> frank calls back anytime i i will say uh it is very clear from all the reports i've read that that putin was counting on the uh, the weakness and the fear and the lack of commitment from the West. I don't know if this is fully a religious crisis or war. I mean, uh, Mikhail, you, you reacted there. Putin doesn't care what West thinks. I think he's hoping that the West is weak, that the coalition okay. against him is um, It's not his hope. He believes okay. in that. Sure, sure. He believes that the Russia is the best empire in the world. And the West will crumble eventually. And and the Russians believe in that with him. Why? Because Russians traditionally are slaves. And the slave's mind will always be a slave. No matter who in power, Tsar, the Communist Party, or Putin. And now these slaves, this horde, invaded Ukraine, who were traditionally the freeborn people. Dr. Dr. Leno, you want to respond to that? Yeah. It has become acceptable in American discourse these days to say things like, Russia has contributed nothing to humanity. Russians are slaves. What exactly is meant by this? Are Russians genetically slaves? Are they culturally slaves? What about 1917? when all over the Russian Empire, Russians stepped up and organized 
locally their own self-government within weeks. Um, could we say this about African Americans? African Americans are inherently slaves. Russian history is much more complicated than this kind of a statement. And I say that while having publicly expressed the most utmost support for Ukraine defending itself aggression, against aggression. I, I think what I hear from Mikhail, as a Ukrainian himself, is a disappointment that the Russian people haven't rejected Putin and this war, and therefore tying that to a mentality that says there is something about the construct of that particular society. The, the mentally, they are But, but Mikhail, don't you think that a lot of that is simply propaganda and, and a media machine, an authoritarian state? The, no matter how propaganda will work, I mean, the propaganda, the Russian propaganda not working on the Ukrainians, at least on the majority of them, but it only works inside of the Russia and on those Russians who leave and support Putin outside of the country. Um, so propaganda is not coming from nowhere. Uh, okay. It's, it's a... a it's a state-created institution and state-supported institution. Dr. Leno, go ahead. I think I have a, a very brief response. Uh, in history, Russia is certainly not the only country have to succumb to authoritarianism sure. with, um, and not the only country where authoritarian rulers have been tremendously popular. So we have to hold on. We can't talk about collective guilt at the same time as it is extremely disturbing that at this point so many Russians support Putin and the invasion of Ukraine. And you accept that that polling, that that public sentiment is true, that there's a lot um, of support? I mean, I've read a little bit on the polling the Levada cent Center yeah. does, and it's probably, um, it's probably still ballpark accurate, but it's probably overestimating to some extent, Putin's support and Ukrainian. But a Western hope that, oh, well, if you could actually get accurate polls, Russian people don't support Putin. You would say, be careful. With no, I, I'm afraid I, I would be very careful about that. And I, yeah. I think an mm -hmm. assumption of our yeah. discourse is that, American discourse, is that people sort of naturally want freedom and democracy. And I'm, I'm afraid that's not true. All right. We're not in our last 30 seconds, but I want you to just tell us when we look at Congress, we, you, you brought that up. What are you looking at next that, that really is the next important piece in this war? Well, the big question is whether the defense uh, supplemental will be passed. And, uh, you know, if, if the speaker uh, were to bring it to a vote, uh, there are a handful of Republicans who would, uh, who would bring him down. So he's not going to do that. But I think uh, there will be a uh, discharge petition. And so I think there's a majority in Congress to pass in the House to pass it. So I think we'll probably see that in the next week or so. Pretty remarkable. The sooner the better. Yeah, pretty pretty yeah. remarkable where we are. But I want to thank uh, Dmitry Bikov, who joined us earlier this hour, inaugural scholar in exile in the Humanities Center at the University of Rochester. Uh, Dr. Matthew Leneau, professor of history at the University of Rochester, thank you for being here. Thank you. Our thanks to Dr. Randy Stone, director of the Skelny Center for Polish and Central European Studies at the University of Rochester. Thank Pleasure you. to talk with you, Evan. And our colleague, Mikhail Gerstein, a native of Ukraine, documentary filmmaker. See you on Saturday, sir. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, more connections coming up in just a moment.